So I'm going to talk about psychedelic psychotherapy today. I'm going to talk about the characteristics of the psychedelic experience, kind of a way to think about it phenomenologically um, to help in its description. I'm going to talk about how psychedelics can be used, utilized safely, really for therapeutic benefit and to avoid um, the classic bad trip, the kind of psychological adverse events. I'm going to specifically talk about psilocybin since I have experience using that in a clinical trial at Harvard UCLA and there's been two other studies uh, com completed with psilocybin and yeah, get into our study. So uh, when it comes to characterizing the experience, uh, I think it's important to remember that psychedelics do not produce a specific um, drug-induced state. And this was well described by Stan Groff, who did a lot of the early work with psychedelics um, in the 50s and 60s in, in, uh, in Maryland. Um, rather, we must consider the sort of extra pharmacological influence, uh, such as understanding the effects of the drug, purpose congestion, the preparation, and environmental and interpersonal elements. So these sort of ideas led to, led to the development of this very important concept with psychedelics known as set and setting. These were originally described by Timothy Leary and his colleagues at, at Harvard um, when they were using uh, LSD uh, in some research. So set is really talking about what the individual who ingests a psychedelic brings to the table in terms of their, their life experience, their mood, expectations, um, family history, their personality structure, significant relationships, and their systems of belief. Setting uh, really accounts for all the other factors that are kind of not internal to the person, um, the physical environment, location, all sorts of sensory stimuli that might be present during uh, intoxication, and the other participants, particularly a therapist or a facilitator. Walter Pankey um, is an important figure in psychedelic research. He was a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and minister who wrote a PhD thesis at Harvard Divinity School about the psychedelic experience. Um, and through his research, he basically defined five distinct um, experiences. Now, these experiences really shouldn't be thought of as separate occurrences with each individual. Any experience can have aspects of all of these. But they, he kind of classically divided these into these five um, experiences. And again, this was not dose-related. Um, he and others related. This was really most related to the set and the setting of the individual during the use of of, of the substance. So the psychotic experience is kind of the, the classic bad trip. Um, this is like an intense fear to the point of panic, paranoia, delusions, really loss of a sense of self and often a lot of kind of physical discomfort. Um, for a time um, in the 60s there was a psycho, psychotomimetic paradigm um, where psychiatrists and uh, other researchers thought that they could model schizophrenia um, with a, with a substance-induced psychosis using LSD, um, psilocybin, DMT, PCP. However, this was abandoned because it really didn't fit that model. Um, and not, uh, not everybody becomes psychotic, and actually most people don't. So. But that kind of was an interesting bit of history. Uh, the psychodynamic experience um, is really about the emergence of unconscious material into the conscious that can later be uh, integrated through depth psychotherapy. So this was practiced by um, depth psychotherapists, um, mainly in Europe, a little bit um, in the United States, again in the 50s and the 60s. And the model of psycholytic therapy was uh, low-dose low dose psychedelics over multiple sessions, and this was integrated through um, depth, depth psychotherapy. Another class is the uh, cognitive psychedelic experience, which is really characterized by this amazing, astonishing lucid thought where uh, maybe a problem or some sort of project can be seen from, from a new perspective. Um, or, you know, inner relationships can be um, re-examined. 
Um, you know, two kind of notable maybe uh, examples of this. The first is Kerry Mullis, who developed PCR. <coughs> he publicly publicly acknowledged um, in his kind of uh, interesting autobiography that he used LSD when kind of contemplating how to uh, develop a technology for the research he was pursuing. And another person who, who spoke but not publicly about um, using um, LSD was Francis Crick, who, according to many sources, um, was using LSD when he was contemplating the structure of, uh, of DNA. Now, I know somebody who's writing a book about the history of psychedelics who recently, um, or at one point, interviewed Watson, who will not admit to Crick uh, saying that. So. Um, the aesthetic experience is probably what most recreational users are going for. Um, this is, you know, when, uh, some of the well-known phenomena of the psych psychedelic intoxication, such as synesthesia, uh, visions of beautiful colors, intricate geometric patterns, forms, architectural patterns. So this is really kind of, you know, an aesthetic experience. Um, and um, a term that's that's out there among kind of recreational psychedelic users is psychonaut, which really means Greek sailor of the mind. And I think this is kind of the experience that those folks are going for. Now what I'm most interested in my research and what many researchers have been interested in, again recently is the what Panky called the mystical experience, what might be called the peak psychedelic experience, the transcendental experience, the cosmic experience. And in his in his um, PhD thesis, he argued that this experience was identical to um, the kind of mystical experience described in all the major uh, religions of the world. Um, and he felt that, that there were nine universal qualities of both a psychedelic mystical experience or uh, one of the more uh, um, static religion, uh, religious mystical experiences, that these were really identical. So these nine universal qualities of the mystical or peak psychedelic experience are a sense of unity of, of oneness, there's a transcendence of time and space, <coughs> deeply felt positive mood, a sense of sacredness, there's a noetic quality, um, meaning that there's some sort of insight gained from this process. There's paradoxicality, where logical contrad contra contradictions um, become apparent if descriptions are strictly analyzed. Um, ineffability, really an inability to really put to words uh, what this experience means. Transiency, and a persisting positive change in attitudes or behavior. Now, if those of you familiar with Abraham Maslow um, and his book, Toward a Psychology of Being, these nine universal qualities are very similar to the uh, characteristics he described more common um, as occurring more commonly among self-actualized people when he would study, you know, the great NFL player at the moment when, um, you know, they scored their first touchdown or a nursing mother um, during that kind of period of joy connecting with their infant. So this has been, these kind of qualities have been described and, stu and studied in other areas of psychology. Oh, so just kind of looking at this, I was trying to find some sort of cross-cultural evidence, and we'll, I'll give you a lot more of that later. But it's interesting, there's one study recently in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, which, you know, looked at psychedelic users versus non-psychedelic drug users versus social drinkers in two sites, Australia and Israel. Again, this is not indigenous use of plant medicine. And they, um, users of psychedelics scored higher on mystical beliefs, life values, and spirituality, and concern for others than the other groups. And also in 2006, this is an article in Psychopharmacology, um, Griffiths and it, Roland Griffiths and his team at uh, John Hopkins University did a study with psychedelic naive um, individuals trying to see if they could induce a mystical experience um, in healthy volunteers. And um, it's a very, very, it's a great paper to read, but uh, uh, 22 out of the 36 individuals in the U.S. had a mystical experience in psilocybin. And in fact, two-thirds of those participants, again, who had never used psychedelic drugs, 
endorse it as being among the top five most important experiences of their life. And one, I believe it was one-third, said it was the most powerful transcendent experience they'd ever had in their life. Um, so, you know, the, the idea of this peak, psych this peak psychedelic uh, experience brings us to the concept of psychedelic psychotherapy, which was known as the psychedelic method, practiced in the United States. A lot of research was done. About 40,000 patients were treated across the U.S. and Canada during that time. And the idea w with this was that the peak psychedelic experience should be the focus because they found that this had the most dramatic um, effect in terms of taking care of fear, anxiety, depression, and pain. And they also felt when people were able to integrate these experiences either through um, um, spiritual work or other kinds of therapeutic work, this really can leave a long-lasting effect after just one kind of treatment um, with a psychedelic if there was a mystical experience. So um, a lot of people have written about how do we, how do we, you know, set and setting are the most important factors to, uh, that uh, influence the psychedelic experience. How do we manipulate those <coughs> to best kind of, um, um, to best go for a therapeutic benefit? So Myron Stoloroff is a, um, was a, was a veteran psychedelic researcher who ran psychedelic research lab in Palo Alto in the 50s and 60s. And um, he writes that set is the most important. And the key characteristics of having kind of a mystical experience um, and a powerful psychedelic experience are really honesty, to be seeking knowledge, appreciate life in all its forms, and to have some sort of ongoing spiritual discipline to help really integrate um, the experience. Um, now, in terms of the setting, he felt that the facilitator of the sitter is the most important aspect of the setting. And it's really important for the, the, uh, the facilitator to be supportive, reassuring, and nourishing to the individual and maintain a safe and beautiful environment um, for the uh, experience. Now, a concept of the facilitator is really the person who kind of leads somebody during a psychedelic experience. Now, this can be an individual or a team, so there must be a therapeutic alliance and a relationship um, with, the, uh, with, the, with the person. Um, and this person is someone who remains sober and really is there only to provide gentle redirection when needed. Um, because as we'll get to in a minute, psychedelics are generally very well tolerated um, in appropriate settings. Um, you know, this is something about... Yeah, it's important for the facilitator to become familiar with the substance because um, there are a variety of, of somatic side effects with some psychedelics, so it's really important to know what those are so the sitter can provide um, kind of gentle reassurance to an individual um, and also to know if there's some sort of un un irregular side effect. Right, so when talking about psychedelic safety, psychedelics really are well tolerated um, in healthy folks who aren't taking prescription medications and who don't have any undiagnosed um, conditions. In a recent study in Lancet, um, Nutt and colleagues looked at the abuse potential of 20 different drugs weighed on a variety of characteristics. And the, the, the only two psychedelic drugs that they looked at, LSD and MDMA, which is kind of an atypical psychedelic, they ranked very relatively low, 14th and 17th out of 20 versus alcohol and tobacco ranked high, fifth and ninth. You know, some of the psychostimulants and narcotics mm -hmm. were among the, uh, the most dangerous um, in that review. So the most common psych psychological adverse effects really are kind of mild psychosomatic discomfort, a little nausea, stomach tightening, um, maybe a little um, dizziness. Um, there can be extreme anxiety, and it can go on to paranoia <coughs> kind of in a predisposed individual in, uh, in a sub-ideal mm -hmm. setting. Um, there has been a, an association with acute psychotic episodes and uh, psychedelics. 
You know, most people feel this is a triggering or an uncovering maybe of a first presentation of a major mental illness, such as a psychotic or manic episode. There certainly will be, you know, one-time psychotic episodes as well. There also is a concept in the transpersonal literature about the spiritual emergency. And I have read several case reports of folks who had a, a spiritual emergency after a psychedelic experience that they were la later able to contextualize through spiritual work. Um, some of those folks required antipsychotics for a period, others didn't. But it really didn't lead to a, a lifelong, um, you know, debilitating psychotic illness. And there really is no absolute method of, of predicting this, obviously, since we don't have that much research about this. Um, in terms of reducing risk, I certainly feel anybody with certain medical contradic contraindications and taking prescription drugs should really avoid taking a psychedelic. Probably if you have a personal history of a major mood disorder thought disturbance, particularly bipolar or schizophrenia, I think that should be avoided. There may even be a case for someone with a very strong family history of, of bipolar or psychotic disorder to be very, very cautious when using um, psychedelics. And certainly anyone receiving treatment um, you know, for, a, for an Axis one disorder really should think twice about using these kind of agents because they really are pretty um, powerful. Now, there's a couple exceptions to that. I just wanted to share with you some of the other studies that are out there. Um, there was a pilot study with psilocybin for OCD completed at the University of Arizona, I believe, in 2005, which showed really, really good results after one dose of psilocybin. Some interesting history behind that. Um, the, uh, the PI of that study, he's an OCD specialist, and he just heard several reports of his patients who would, um, you know, go visit kind of mestizo um, healers and have mushroom sessions, and sometimes their OCD symptoms would uh, uh, would would remit for three, four, five months, and that's what gave him this idea to look into it, and they had some good results. There's currently an MDMA study for PTSD at um, University of South Carolina in Charleston. I believe they're treating their last two subjects right now, and then after six months that'll be published. Um, they've actually treated um, two Gulf, uh, two uh, um, U.S. Army veterans as well with PTSD. Um, there's our study with psilocybin for anxiety associated with terminal cancer. There's also um, the same group that did that, that study on mysticism at Johns Hopkins now has approval for treating 40 patients with psilocybin um, for um, any stage of cancer at a higher dose, but they haven't been able to recruit anybody yet. And I believe there is an MDMA study for anxiety related to cancer in approval at Harvard that is uh, now being uh, begun. Okay, just really briefly regarding bad trips. I get a lot of questions about that. So, um, Stan Groff has a really good chapter about this in LSD psychotherapy. Um, basically, he feels that they're generally time-limited and they resolve on their own. <coughs> he looks at the phenomena that kind of comes up in these experiences latent in a person's psyche. So really, um, he feels it's important to allow the person to go through the process, remain grounded, and not to kind of curtail the uh, experience abruptly either by, you know, kind of talking intervention or um, a psychotropic, and that later that material can be integrated. Um, Houston Smith is a pretty um, well-known religious uh, scholar. He's written a book about psychedelics called Cleansing the Door of Perception, Doors of Perception. He was involved in a, in a study while he was a student at Harvard Divinity School uh, given psilocybin during the Good Friday experience. So he has a pretty lifelong perspective on psychedelics. And he has written that maybe some of the most dramatic and challenging experiences uh, provide the most potential for growth when they're worked through in a, you know, in, a, in an appropriate manner. Why avoid tranquility? Well, the idea is there's a process that's going on involving unconscious material coming to consciousness, so don't abrupt that softly. I think he uh, he really recommends, you know, using 
you know, physical, to physically restrain someone, hold them down when needed, allow them to work through it. And if absolutely needed, maybe a benzodiazepine. But the idea, you don't want to just curtail that right there. He feels that actually leads to kind of more psychological trauma, uh, not letting that process kind of finish. Okay, so now we're going to talk about psilocybin. We'll do a little bit about the ethnobotany of psilocybin. Um, so psilocybin is an alkaloid coming from uh, what are really commonly known as magic mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, um, from this genus psilocybin. And it, this is the most important kind of group of mushrooms used by um, Mexican healers. And they were also used in Guatemala. And this map kind of shows where they just occur across the world. Um, you know, when we talk about psychoactive plants, there's evidence going back about 7,000 years of humans using um, plant medicine um, kind of in, in healing and also for kind of religious use. This is a, a, a kind of a, a scratching of a cave in, um, I believe, in south of France. If you can see in this depiction, it's a shaman who's kind of dressed like a bee, and there's all these mushroom appendages. And they found that um, in some of these older societies, you know, mushrooms when collected can't stay forever. They would actually store them in honey. So this is, um, and there were, you know, honey, honey, you know, honey pots found with uh, remnants of psilocybin mushrooms in some of these kind of older uh, societies. So they're really found in most parts of the world, really in kind of more disturbed areas. And I mean disturbed areas by humans. Um, as humans domesticated cattle, th this would disturb different areas. It would change the kind of flora and fauna. And um, as many people might know, a lot of mushrooms grow in cow dung, particularly psilocybin mushrooms. It's, it's really their ideal place to grow. So um, ironically, as you know, Matt has settled the world, you know, mushrooms have kind of come with him. Um, there's about a hundred species that produce psilocybin, which um, produces a very kind of typical psychedelic effect. So this was not um, unnoticed by the uh, the Spaniards when they came to Central America. Um, the Florentine Codex is is kind of this interesting collection of writings by this uh, kind of uh, member of the Inquisition, I believe, just kind of just writing descriptions of what was going on in the New World. And what he noticed was, and when the effects of the mushrooms had left them, they consulted among themselves and told one another what they had seen in vision. So even in kind of the, um, the Inquisition's literature about this, it really shows kind of a sacramental or a ceremonial or kind of a psychological use of the mushroom. And uh, in, in 1616, um, you know, the Inquisition really got involved and really uh, ordered really the killing of all users of these plant medicines, anyone using herbs and roots, with which they lose and confound their senses and the illusions and fantastic representations, representations they have, judge and proclaim afterwards as revelation or true notice of things to come. And um, here's another quote from an, actually an inquisitor um, talking about what these mushrooms did, um, which when drunk deprive of the senses because it is very powerful and by this means they communicate with the <coughs> devil because he talks to them when they are deprived of judgment and the said drink and deceive them with different hallucinations, and they attribute it to a god they say is inside the seed. So this really was noticed, um, you know, by the Inquisition. Um, just a little bit of history to get you to now. Um, there was a, during the 20th century, there was an argument in the anthropological literature whether these things were mushrooms or not. There were some folks until, you know, mushrooms were rediscovered in the 50s, you know, by the West, that really the Spaniards are incorrect, that they actually these, um, 
these areas in Guatemala and Mexico were actually using peyote, which was well understood and, uh, and, and categorized. So for many years, really, in the West, we knew nothing about um, psychedelic mushrooms. And then there was a, a famous investment banker named Gordon Wasson, who married a Russian aristocrat. And um, for their honeymoon, they went back to Russia and spent some time out in the country. And one of, one of the mornings there, his wife went out and picked some, some wild mushrooms and cooked them, you know, for a breakfast. And first, Watson was very scared of the mushrooms because, you know, being from the West, were very um, mycophobic. But his wife insisted that they were safe and healthy, so he ate it and he really liked the mushrooms. Now, these weren't psychedelic mushrooms, just really nice-tasting kind of wild mushrooms. So after that, he became fascinated with mushrooms and became an amateur mycologist. And this is a man of, you know, extreme resources. So he got wind of the use of mushrooms in a, in a, in a cult um, in North Mexico and managed to go down there and actually meet a woman named Maria Sabina, who's a famous um, mestizo curandera of the Mazatec tribe. And he actually was invited to a mushroom ceremony and he brought Time Life um, photographers with him. And he documented all this um, in a pretty interesting kind of Time Life magazine article. I didn't keep the clip in here. But, um, and that's kind of how Timothy Leary first heard about uh, mushrooms, um, was reading that Time Life magazine. I think it's from 1950 or 1951. Um, and then it actually took some time. In the U.S., there wasn't a chemist who was able to extract anything that was psychoactive out of the mushroom. They tried all the best U.S. chemists. So then they sent it off to Europe to all the labs there, and it was Albert Hoffman, who um, is the uh, discoverer of LSD, who was able to um, extract psilocybin from mushrooms. So and that's how we get it today. So for our study, psilocybin is made in a research lab in Massachusetts. It's not coming from a mushroom. It's a synthetic version. Okay, so this is a little bit about the chemistry of psilocybin. It's in the tryptamine family. If you take a look at it, it looks an awful lot like serotonin. Um, it's 4-phosphoroxy-anandimethyltryptamine. Um, it's active at you know 5-H2A and 2C receptors. Medium dose, about 12 to 20 milligrams, produces a well-controlled altered state of consciousness. I think getting higher at 20, 30 really is a really profound dose. Generally, at this medium dose, this is kind of what we're using in our study, the effect lasts for about four to six hours. Um, the state, you know, there's stimulation of affect, enhanced ability for introspection, induction of primary psychological processes similar to a dream in hypnagogic state, and some perceptual changes. This is just a list of some psilocybin species <coughs> and their relative percentages of psilocybin, psilocin, and baocysteine. So psilocin and baocysteine are two other um, um, psychoactive uh, compounds that are available out of mushrooms. So talking about toxicity, you know, mice can survive 200 milligrams per kilogram, which is a lot. And the ED50 to LD50 ratio, the ED is your effective dose, the LD is your lethal dose, is extremely high for psilocybin, 641, um, versus aspirin and nicotine. So now I'll tell you a little bit about um, the trial we're doing down at Harvey UCLA. So we originally um, approved to treat 12 subjects with advanced cancer. Um, unfortunately, two of our subjects um, passed away before finishing the uh, six-month follow-up um, work, so we petitioned the FDA and they allowed us to recruit in one more. So we're going to treat 13 patients. We've treated 11 so far. We're doing the first session of our 12th patient this weekend, and I, am, I may be consenting a 13th patient tomorrow, um, hopefully. 
are, um, subjects for this trial can have any CNS involvement, no cardiac disease, and no history of major mental illness. And we can t we're approved for adults up to age 70. The study is really looking at the effect on anxiety associated with an advanced cancer diagnosis, and we're also looking at the pain. This is an experimental treatment. You know, there is no FDA approval for psilocybin um, right now. It's a double-blind placebo-controlled methodology. Um, each subject serves as their own control. So they're admitted twice for the research protocol. One time they're given niacin, the other time they're given psilocybin. Um, the psilocybin is kept in a safe um, in the basement of the hospital, and only the research pharmacist has access to that. So she produces um, a capsule on the morning of the, uh, of the session for each, uh, each session. So in terms of, we do a lot of pre preparation uh, with, with our subjects before the actual treatment, uh, make sure they meet the team. You know, we really serve as the sitters, the facilitators. All, you know, my, myself, Charlie Grove was the PI, and our research coordinator now is Alicia Danforth, are at bedside with the subject the entire experience. We want to help them uh, think and contemplate their intention or motivation of entering the study. I didn't put this on our earlier slide, but there's a lot written about intention going into a psychedelic experience. It can kind of set the trajectory of the experience. It's a way to kind of work with set a little bit to help um, uh, to help have an experience that might be more beneficial to an individual. And we really want them to learn as much as they can about uh, psychedelic therapy. Now a lot of people ask me, are these folks who are, have had psychedelics before, or are these all um, naive folks who come to our study? You know, it's really been a mixture, you know, we don't have a rule out for having past experiences with psychedelics, um, though we have treated some people who have had psychedelic experiences, some maybe, you know, once or twice in the 60s, some more recently, and some never. So the setting, so um, there's a designated GCRC down at Harvard UCLA. Um, luckily, it's a double door room with extra sound insulation because this room used was, was kind of retrofitted for a sleep study that was done in the past. So we tried to deinstitutionalize it a little bit. This is how, <laughs> how Alicia kind of decorates the room and things like that, you know. Um, we encourage people to bring in personal objects and, and photographs, which they do, so really kind of customize it. Um, you know, try to make it less hospital setting. Um, this is the participant's point of view, a shot by one of our participants. So I think that's kind of a nice shot. <laughs> so during the actual session, you know, after you know, we uh, we encourage patients to really go deeply within and, and really um, enter the experience. Um, we provide them with eye shades, which um, and noise canceling earphones. We have pre-selected music um, that they listen to. Now we do have to check in once each hour to check a blood pressure and a pulse, and at four hours there's one pain measure that we have to do. But the idea is really to allow them to go deep into their own process. You select the music or We select the music. Well, you know, we, we, it's, it's not pre-selected across, standardized across all the boards, but, you know, we found certain music is, is helpful to kind of get into a relaxed, you know, kind of state. Now there have been folks, and one person in particular, who had some experience with psychedelics, some strong ideas about what she wanted to listen to. So we just had those CDs and incorporated them some. I think there's some benefit not having, it, having a music actually that they've never heard, particularly instrumental music, or if there are lyrics in another language, just to allow make it as abstract as possible. So um, there's a lot written about music in, in psychedelics. I can see Susanna Pustos just walked in. She did a great thesis on the use of uh, music um, uh, with ayahuasca. 
So it's, it's really an important area to look at. We're not in this study, but it's a huge, hugely important <coughs> influence on the set setting. <coughs> yeah, some tribal, some instrumental, you know. So, um, you know, kind of world music, there can be lyrics if it's not in a language that's known to the participant. So generally, if it's not English, we'll use some of that. Because yeah. I think human voice can be very powerful, too, for compelling someone. Um, you know, one of the classics we use is the, the soundtrack from the Mission. Are you guys familiar with that that movie and that sound? It's, it's really, I mean, it's a beautiful soundtrack. So, all right. So this is uh, one of our participants who remarked, um, "It was kind of remarkable how this weird music I would never normally listen to became a part of my trip." So she was very reluctant to, um, during her placebo session. You know, sometimes it's fairly apparent when it's placebo. She started really complaining. You know about the music, but we we stuck with it. She's like, I don't like this. These are my preferences. But interestingly enough, when she had her, what we assume is the you know the active session, she was just blown away by the music in terms of where it took her and things like that. So that's why I include that quote. So at the conclusion of the session, you know, generally about after five, five, four or five hours, you know, we do some integration. We we ask um, folks to invite their family in, and you know get them together and then this is kind of a list of some of the study measures so um, you know one is a profile of mood states which is one day before six days after and then monthly for six months there's a anxiety inventory the Beck depression scale symptom distress this um, 5d ASC that's the five-dimensional altered states of consciousness it's translated from German it looks at kind of you know at six hours was the person's consciousness altered or not um, and then the brief psychiatric rating scale, which is really to look at kind of any kind of psychosis or anything that would emerge from this. Um, and there's some pain in, there's some pain scales um, as well. Um, yeah, speaking of pain, you know, most folks that we've kind of um, screened who have significant pain have opted not to go into the study because it requires going off, um, you know, um, narcotic analgesics for the study. Because that really would blunt the psychedelic experience. So. That's going to be a measure that we're really not going to get that much information about. It's really most of our folks don't have significant pain. It's also they're able to come in, you know, into the hospital, spend a night um, at this stage of their life. So, um, yeah. So it's a little early for any data analysis, but hopefully that'll be coming soon. Every participant has described it as beneficial, um, just just to us. And let's see. Since I have some time, I'll throw you a couple of other quotes from some participants. Um, I've always felt my mind was altered enough having OCD that I didn't need to stretch it out to see what else might come out. I had heard that psilocybin might relieve my OCD symptoms, so I decided to try it. So this is a very interesting participant because she is somebody who had contacted um, Francisco, Francisco Moreno at University of Arizona about the OCD and psilocybin study. Um, and she was d disqualified from that study because she had end-stage cancer. So he was, she was referred to us and I did the screening with her, and she did not meet criteria for OCD, <coughs> according to any structured interview. We do a we do a skit for that, you know. She so we we could bring her in. Um, so, and OCD technically wasn't a uh, one of our absolute contraindications. So that was very really kind of interesting. So she found it really really beneficial. Also, she is she was a psychedelic, actually, a pretty much drug naive individual. So, which was kind of interesting. Okay, I was comfortable, not afraid, and in touch with something that made me happy. I would very much like to repeat the study and compare experiences. 
Okay, so those are, those are also comments by that, that subject. Now this is another subject. Um, my first perception of the psilocybin's effects was a feeling of being supported by many hands. I thought about my relationships with my husband, members of my family, and my Buddhist teachers. During a bathroom break, I saw myself in the mirror and started to cry, grieving the effect of two rounds of chemotherapy, the loss of my long curly hair, and my relatively youthful appearance. I saw the cancer as part of my spiritual path. Prior to the psilocybin session, I had been plagued by obsessive thoughts that I would suffer horribly while going through the dying process. Death would not be the end of my life, just a transition. Throughout the session, I felt a strong sense of spiritual presence of the connectedness of all things and that everything is perfect just the way it is. Realistically, no type of treatment could completely eliminate the fears associated with having a terminal illness. But when I am able to tap into the memory of that blissful state, it is of great comfort to me. So that subject um, was someone who was, you know, kind of raised with a Judeo-Christian background, but had adopted kind of uh, Buddhism, mindfulness practices, meditation, probably um, for the last 25 years. And though she, I, I think, felt she could, she benefited a lot in her life from a lot of those concepts. It was really difficult to actually put that experience into effect when it came to this diagnosis of cancer. And um, in her kind of life story, she was really hoping to be able to make it through to the um, the marriage of her son, which she has. And um, so those are kind of the kind of personal issues she was grap- grappling with. But she really, she really felt a connection to kind of her own adopted spirituality, more of the kind of transcendental karmic spirituality through this process, which is a really uh, kind of a gratifying thing for all of us to kind of work with her around. So I'd like just like to acknowledge all the volunteers, um, our 11 subjects who've uh, been so generous with their time with so little bit left to come to the study. So thanks for listening so intently, and we have some time for questions.